Well, hey everyone, I hope you're doing well. I'm Logan and you're listening to LV's Music Corner. On this episode of LV's Music Corner, I'm joined by guitarist and singer Earl Kate of the Kate Brothers Band. Some of you may remember we interviewed Ernie on here. He is the younger brother by eight minutes to Earl. And together, the two of them have had quite a life in the music business. Here is Earl Kate on LV's Music Corner. Folks, I am with the other brother of the Cape Brothers. We interviewed Ernie first, and today we are joined by the older brother, Earl. <laughs> yeah. Now, Earl, being eight minutes older than your brother, uh, did you get blamed more for things as a child, or was the blame sort of equally shared being twins? I think it was pretty equal. We were kind of involved in stuff together so. now there's a uh there's a sister in there as well now was she older than the two of you or younger she's younger okay yeah. so thinking about you know sort of your first musical experiences as a child what was the first song you ever remember hearing <laughs> you know i can't remember I know we used to listen to, my dad used to listen to the Grand Ole Opry, especially on Saturday night. We had one of those old wooden radios, you know, tall radios. I think it had like a 12-inch speaker in it, so you could hear the bass fiddle, you know, could hear that low end. That's one of the first things I remember thinking, boy, this I like the way this sounds, <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Other than that, I don't know, maybe in school, grade school, I think... Our teacher was like third or fourth grade. Our teacher played piano and stuff like that. And we did little little things in school, little musicals or whatever you call it. Now, what was the first instrument that was brought into your house? Actually, I think that my dad, Arnie might have told you this, dad came, somehow or another we came across an old guitar or something. It just had one string on it. And we kissed both of us would be messing around with it. We kind of figure out how to make it sound a little bit like a, mu- a music, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. he, he thought, well, you know, they may have, you know, be interested. So he ended up trading that, trading somehow for a guitar. It wasn't very good, but at least it had six strings on it and stuff. And then you got a banjo because we had a, a guy that lived, a family that lived not too far from us out there in the country the guy that played banjo and they were friends so they got i got to listen to that so i actually started playing banjo and guitar about the same time i guess i didn't i didn't play the banjo as much as i did guitar but now do you uh do you still play banjo any i've got a couple of banjos every once in a while i'll pick it up i don't do this you know i mean i, I appreciate it you know if it, you know, the great Pickers Earl Scruggs was my favorite <laughs> as far as real real five string. Of course, you got all those great ones, Bayless Fleck and all those guys, Killer. Yeah. But it's gotten to be a more popular instrument now in the last few years. That kind of res- resurgence in the bluegrass. 
Yeah, and uh, do you remember who made that first guitar that that you had growing up? Was it like a Sears and Roebuck catalog guitar or something? Uh, you know, I have no idea. I'm not even sure that it had a. I can't. I can't remember that. I really can't. I know the first. Uh, we had a harmony, little harmony art arts top guitar, and then we had. Then first electric was a Montgomery Ward's airline guitar with a little amp that wasn't much but we didn't know much about what was going on you know at the time. <laughs> we started figuring out well the bigger amp sounds better <laughs> oh yeah now tell me a little bit about the everly brothers and how the everly brothers affected the two of you well when we were in high school you know like junior high i guess it was and on through they first heard i think yeah all i have to do is dream was the song it was on a jukebox somewhere, and I can't remember where we were at, but we heard it. We hadn't heard anything quite that cool. I mean, it's just their harmony sounded so good. And uh, so we start, you know, checked in and found out their records. And started, every time they get a new 45 out, we would buy it and, and usually learn it. You know, we, we probably did this almost every song that came out for two or three years there, I guess. And we play it like it school banquets and stuff like that we'd get up both of us would play guitar pretty much then and then we started going more electric where it was the everly brothers sort of the only harmony band that you were listening to at the time or was it one of those things that, that uh, was like the biggest influence as a harmony that, that band was- that was the biggest probably, and it was just a duo. But but obviously, yeah, believe it or not, like Marty Robbins had always had a lot of harmony on his songs with him. You know, the Glazer Brothers, which we all always really liked. The same with Marty Robbins, I really dug them. And it wasn't too much, really, all that too much into the gospel quartets as much as you might think. But we were, you know, Statler Brothers were big. <laughs> you know what I mean? In the 60s, you know, 50s, I guess. They were okay. Thinking about getting into soul music, when when was it that you first sort of discovered, uh, I guess, what was kind of considered then black music? Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, really, uh, backing up a little bit, right along, along that same time with Everly Brothers, we, stuck, we were listening to Chuck Berry. We, we really liked him, you know, that the rock and roll. Of course, Elvis, you know, Elvis Presley too. And then, uh, and then a little later on, Bo Diddley, we heard, that's cool. We didn't, we didn't really think too much about, you know, race that, you know, you know what I'm saying? But what really turned us on was Ray Charles. I mean, we heard that, we heard what I say. It was like, <laughs> hey, that's what got us interested. A lot of Bobby Blue Bland, and uh, a bunch of those. We used to listen to, I'm going up a few years, but when we go, you know, at, right out of high school, we play in the bands. We'd go to like Norman, OU, play frat parties and, and stuff like that. And when, when we drive back home late at night, we could pick up WLAC on the radio. AM, you had to really be you know hard to find it on the dial once you found it it was late night show john r the hoss man right that's all they played was the rhythm and blues he played slim harpo and 
you know, Willie Dixon, all those, all those guys, and that, and that really fueled our, you know, taste for the rhythm and blues. So you're you're doing this, and and how old are you when you're going out to Norman? I was probably uh, nineteen. And and was that sort of the only stuff you were doing in in Oklahoma at that time, or or were you guys doing stuff in Tulsa as well? We did some Tulsa too. Yeah, it's I, you know it's hard for me to remember some some of the songs. But of course, back then everybody was playing high heel sneakers and and uh, Hey Bo Diddley and uh, I can't think right off much song. And of course, obviously Chuck Berry stuff, you know, Sweet Little Sixteen. And, now, when you guys started doing this this soul stuff, and um, what were some of the groups in in Arkansas and locally that were kind of doing that soul music as well? Were there any there at that time? There was a few. Like there was a guy named Lord Marley. You know, that he he never did make it big or anything, but he he played kind of did some. He was keep played piano and sang. He did Ray Charles and. And do John Loudermill stuff like that, but great big idol of the Golden Heads. <laughs> but but most of the and some you know it wasn't until the you know like sixties we think about mid sixties and where it really we heard the Memphis thing started happening with Rufus Thomas, Walking the Dog, you know all the frat bands that play that you know I say frat bands I mean bands that were bands that were actually in fraternities too. You know? You uh, you mentioned Memphis and, um, and kind of those Stax records. When when this whole Stax catalog came out, how did that shape you? Oh, a lot. I mean, I, I'd say probably in 67, 66, 67. Wilson, Wilson Pickett, Otis Redding, Rufus Thomas, Booker T, MGs. Uh, that was pretty popular music up here because – you know, when that when that when that organization or that label or whatever got really big, well, obviously it spread out. So we heard a lot of it at, at, at the colleges and stuff back then, especially here because we're fairly close to Memphis. And of course, the Tulsa thing was kind of happening a little bit too. You know, Kale was still there, and I, you know, I heard him play one time at a club. But Jimmy Markham, I could played a couple of gigs with Jimmy. But you know, that's, that's a little later. So when was sort of, you know, the first time you met Ronnie Hawkins? Well, it would have been in the early 60s because he, he bought a piece of a club here, the Rockwood Club. He bought it, you know, another guy bought it in the, the 60s. I think I met him, we met him in about 61 or 62. I'm not positive about the exact, I think it was 61. And he had already had, the, you know, pretty good little hit record with 40 days and then Mary Lou <clears throat> of course he was from here but he was primarily stationed in Canada that's where he was making his money but he'd come down here and play his club you know every three or four months he'd come down and they'd stay for a week or two but he'd go to Norman too and play or to Dallas or whatever they'd get some gigs when they come down but I liked him I remember hearing you know it a swimming pool in Springdale in the summertime when I probably was 59 or 60. I can't even remember. I remember they had a jukebox they played out by the pool and I heard 40 days. I thought, I really like that song. I didn't have any idea that 
the person doing it was from Fayetteville or from our, you know, Northwest Arkansas. And then, uh, then you guys came upon Levon Helm, who was pretty significant in your career. Uh, tell, tell, tell us a little bit about that. Well, we first met Levon at the same time we met Ronnie, right? Uh-huh. And, uh, so we, we, we weren't really friends at the first, but later on, <clears throat> like in 1965, we, uh, one of our bass players was, you know, graduating from, well, not, who had graduated anyway, he was going to college. He didn't want to leave. We decided we wanted to go on the road. So we, we connect, contacted Levon because they were in New Jersey at this club. They'd been there all summers in 65. <clears throat> they'd been there, I guess, since May. I don't remember exactly when they started because they'd been here not long before that, but they're playing six nights a week and, uh, Called them and their agent brought us up to leave. He recommended you well, get the Delrays because we'll call them Delrays. Get the Delrays, Kate Brothers, twin, Kate Twins are in that. They're good little bands. Anyway, they it make a long story short. We went to, up to that club and they were they were playing Leave On and the Hawks. And we played for a couple of weeks there with them and they went on to Canada. So they went on to play with Bob Dylan. In fact, they they were telling us, oh, we got the deal to play with Bob Dylan. You know, they're going to pay us $1,600 a week for the band, whether we play or not. Back then, that was pretty good money. But So anyway, they we saw them again in Toronto. We went on up to Canada after we left there. We stayed there a couple of weeks and went up to Canada and saw them at the Friars Club in Toronto right, right, right before they were getting ready to head out with Bob Dylan. And then, and then when he... See, then when he 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 kind of back backed out of the Dylan family. I don't know how long he played. Actually, I can even remember how long he played with with Dylan with the rest of the guys. But he decided he didn't like flying in the charter plane, and he didn't he didn't he wasn't really that hip on Bob Dylan's voice. You know what I mean, anyway, he dropped out for a year or so. He actually came back here and played with played with Ernie and I a few gigs at two different times. He went. Once and he left and went to California for a little bit. He tried to try to get us to go to California with him. We wouldn't go because he said, "Oh, Leon Russell and, and you know those Barkham and all those guys are out there. We'll have a good time." So we didn't go. So we didn't want to go but anyway. He came back and they played a couple of gigs and then we were setting up to play a gig at the rink and he was setting his drums up and said, "Well, boys, I guess I won't have to go up to New York." Robbie Robinson, you know, Robbie called and said, "We got a deal with." Capitol Records. I guess I better get up there. They'd already pretty much done the basement tapes. He he wasn't all that much involved in that, really. Anyway, he said, "My little nephew can play the drums. You'll give him a chance, you know, because he'd always kind of mentored. Levi Knowles kind of mentored him. So anyway, that's the way that happened. Yeah. Even even after that, he his folks lived in Springdale. His parents and his sisters were here. Anyway, he uh, he'd always come to town. I was running a music store, the Ben Jacks Music Store there in, in, here in Pebble. And uh, every time he'd come to town, he'd come to the store, visit, and then we'd play, and he'd come where we're, where we're playing and stuff. But he, we just got to be friends. And uh, that's the way that happened. I see. He's always helped us. Yeah. Oh, certainly. And... In fact, he had a... Excuse me. In fact, he had, when I was at the store, he, he was back in Woodstock, and he had 
Albert Grossman called me because Albert Grossman was managing at the time. You know, he had Janice Joplin and Dale and all these people for a while, but had talked to me on the phone and tried to set up a deal, which never, never did quite happen. But what probably a good thing it didn't because they ended up ditching Albert later on. And I already may have told you the story about how we got hooked up with the Electra, Electra Record, Electra Asylum. Uh-uh. Levon, uh, it's it. We he we gave Levon a cassette tape of some songs, right? We didn't. I think most of them were original. He was he was in California. It was right after they did a tour with the. Well, it's after they did after the flood in '74, and then they did some shows with the Crosby Stills and Nash. Anyway, they, they were working with David Geffen. You know, and then Elliot Roberts, who was a management company. But anyway, make a long story short, Levon sent a cassette tape to Elliot Roberts, who was managing, you know, Joni Mitchell, and anyway, and Neil Young. Anyway, Elliot went down to Electra, Electra's office because he was partnership with Dave Gap at the time. They had to split up. One guy, they couldn't own a record company and manage acts both. You couldn't do both. You had to, so they split it up. Anyway, he left his cassette tape on this guy named Chuck Plotkin's desk at noon at lunchtime, left it on his desk. Chuck was the head of A&R at Asylum. He came back from lunch, and he's this cassette laying on his desk. He said, I wonder what this is. He stuck it in it. was back then. Everybody had a little cassette player there. You know. <clears throat> anyway, he, he said, man, I like, I like this. It had Ernie's phone number on it. He calls Ernie on the phone and says, I want to know, is this you, who this is, uh, this tape? You're, I said, well, that's it's us. It's our band. It's my brother and I and all that. He said, well, how did I get this tape? And, and at first he was like, well, I'm not sure. Maybe leave on. <laughs> get it to somebody, right? <laughs> anyway, that's what, and the guy and Chuck said, well, I won't be going to Muscle Soldier in a couple of weeks. I'd like to come by Fayetteville and see you guys play. So he did. And that's how we got signed with the company. And then I'm assuming that that is the first time that the two of you got to meet Steve Cropper. Well, yeah, what happened, exactly what happened is they sent us, the record company sent us up to New York, to Mappinock, New York, which is not far from Woodstock, to work with John Simon. John Simon had produced the band, the music from Big Pink and then the Brown album, right? And, we went, they flew us up there, so we stayed there for almost a month, just kind of practicing and rehearsing, going through songs and stuff, and went to the studio. Maybe we were there two or three weeks, I don't know. Anyway, we went down to New York City and we cut three or four songs. It sounded pretty good, but it was it was Terry on drums and this guy named Bill Wright on bass. Anyway, they sent it out to California, and they said, well, it's pretty good, but it's still not quite what we think you guys can do. You know, we're going to bring you out here and hook you up with Steve Cropper because we think he's more up your alley, you know, for the R&B sound. The band was a little bit more, I wouldn't say folky side, but you know what I'm saying, there was a little difference in the style. So hook us up with Steve, and that ended up to be a really good combination. He was a great guy. We did two albums with him. Now, when thinking of, of Steve at this point, was he more of an idol to you as a guitar player, or was he more of a mentor? Well, kind of a mentor. I, I, you know, I'd, I'd always kind of liked the licks he stood, did on that various records, you know, like 
and, and even even with Booker T and MGs, I, I enjoyed his simple, simple kind of guitar playing. It's the style I like that. He wasn't as you know big an influence as a guitar player as you know, some other people were probably, but but he was a good guy and he really had a good ear. And then he played on some of the tunes with. Yeah, I always like Steve. I still do. I've talked to him not too long ago. Yeah. And uh, you you mentioned these sort of influences as guitar players. Who were some of your other influences as a guitar player? Well, you know, at the old Rockwood Club, I remember for the first time. I remember the first time I ever heard BB King, and I didn't know who it was. I just heard it. I thought, man, I like that guitar. You know, he was bending the strings. And then there was a guy named Fred Carter that played. On Ronnie Hawkins' records, actually played with Ronnie some, and he ended up in Nashville. But I liked his playing. Of course, I liked James Burton. James Burton, I always liked that. Uh, and later, later on, Roy Buchanan. Uh, oh, there was a lot of them. I, I like Clapton a, a lot. You know, just there's there's so many thousand guitar players that are really good. It's hard to say oh, this is the best. I don't think there's such a thing as the best. Yeah, I think everybody everybody's different. Just like Eddie Van Halen, he had his thing before anybody else. You know, he started it. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. were there any sort of uh, Oklahoma musicians that that stood out to you? Maybe folks like uh, Jesse Ed Davis or Steve Gaines. Yeah, and I Kale like Jesse. And... Oh yeah, Kale. I always kind of like this kind of cool simple homemade type stuff that's what I, I really like that of course i always loved leon russell but speaking of jimmy Jim, i mean eddie Ed davis when first time i met that he was playing with conway twitty oh really yeah and then later on of course i liked what he did with charge mahal but uh we actually we were in california in the 80s there playing with the band in uh, 84 I guess it was and it, he showed up played some stuff with us but he was kind of not in that good a shape you know he was doing a lot of drugs and stuff but he hung out with us for three or four days yeah he was uh, he was a great guitar player I mean some yeah, of the like sessions he did out there in California Dr. My Eyes and uh, oh, Monkeys yeah. and, and all of those Oh yeah, all that stuff. He didn't realize he was there, you know, because they didn't advertise it back then. And you know. right. well, same with Leon, obviously, and Leon from Gary Lewis. And, I mean, just that whole what do you call that? I'm trying to think of that whole LA scene with the musicians, the backup musicians. Uh huh. What, what's that movie called? I've seen it. The, ah, you know, it tells you know about all those guys. That, that played on all those hit records. Of course, Leon. I mean, uh, Leon was one of them. Yeah, I honestly can't think of it. Yeah, what, I can't right, right off. Yeah, have you seen the Muscle Shows? I've seen bits and pieces of it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. In fact, that Dan Penn guy that they interviewed there, he he was at Muscle Show. He wrote that song for Aretha Franklin. Do right. If you want to do right, woman, or whatever it was. He wrote that. He wrote, I'm your puppet. Two or five brothers. He wrote, he produced the box tops, the first version of the letter, which 
Wayne Carson wrote the letter. We worked with him too. Anyway, Dan just did a new CD. He sent Ernie and I. He did a couple of our songs, nice. well, a couple of songs that we wrote with him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, going back to this this first album of yours, after we kind of did a little aside there on guitar players, um, it's called. The Cape Brothers, uh, it's a black yeah. cover, and it came out right. in uh, the back half of 75. Exactly. And it, it had your biggest son on there, Union Man. Uh, yeah. What, what's kind of the backstory behind Union Man? Who who wrote it? And I know Steve's got writing credits on it as well. Yeah. We uh, Actually, what happened is when I was running the store, I, somebody brought me the tape of this. I can't remember the guy's name. He was anyway. The song this black guy was singing this song about the planters, which used to be like, especially in the Delta, you know, where you know, if you join the union, you get, you know, supposed to get more, more money, and you know, whatever. Anyway, it's just that, just that one little idea. Set. And we actually recorded, we wrote Ernie and I wrote the song and we recorded it in a different style entirely. It was like kind of like like a roll. I can't explain it. Like a Rolling Stone, like uh, uh, you talk woman kind of, you know, feel. But when we got to L.A. and we and I don't that actually that song might have been on one of the old Metro Media records. I'm not sure about that. When we got down to California. We we were running through songs with Steve and he said let's. Let's try, cut that one tonight. So, so he said, Let, "Let's change it up, put it in a minor key." He said, "Let's try to do this. Let's, let's, let's try to do kind of a, more of like a disco kind of beat because that was really what was happening. It starting to happen at the I mean, We didn't have any idea what disco was. <laughs> what are you talking about? Anyway, that's what went. That's why he ended up getting some of the credit for writing because he just rearranged it mainly. <laughs> oh yeah. And uh, that was that was your biggest charting song, and it hit like what number twenty four or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that was a few charts we went on up there. What was happening too is like they put the, and we they released it there like in November, I guess it was something like that. Of course, we had the Christmas coming up, but but it wasn't until later, you know, like we started touring in the first of the year in seventy six, they put us on tour with Queen right? so on the same record label and we knew they knew we weren't musically a match but they said we need to get you that exposure and you know it was Queen's first big tour night at the opera so so we got to play all those dates with them so every time we we fly on the same flight you know it wasn't a charter plane but it was a commercial we're all on the same flights as soon as we got to every ta- every city they would First thing we do is go to radio stations. And we you know we play they play our song, they play Union Man or whatever. But so if so consequently the song it went to number one in Boston and then it went to number one in, in uh, Columbus Columbus, Ohio, Ohio. Anyway, it's just several cities it, it went way up their charts back then. It was different than it is nowadays. It wasn't all automated stuff. Anyway, if we could have got the record company, if we could have got everybody to go on on it at number one at the same time, would have been number one. <laughs> but it was also scattered over three or four months' time. 
because they, you know, some people would say, well, we think it's this other record. We're not going to go on the record. And once it started getting more airplay, then they'd go on it. You know, Memphis went on it real quick, of course. But anyway, that's what happened. It took a while to get it going. When when you think about that song, did it ever have like a crossover appeal? Did it sort of cross over into soul or cross over yeah. into the disco chart or the pop chart or anything like that? I don't even know if they had a disco chart back then or not. I know we went we were in Boston. These guys picked us up, Ernie and I up, took us down to this club. So when you when you come down to the club, because Union Man was one of the it was a disco place, right? and that this that DJ would have two turntables, and he would in the middle section where it did when David Foster did that synthesizer thing in the middle, they would somehow loop it. In other words, they'd make the song they could keep the song going constantly for the dancers, right? Wow. That's yeah. that's something. Yeah. Now there's there's several other major session players on that uh, album. Uh, do any of them yeah. stand out in particular? Obviously, you mentioned uh, Dave Foster. Yeah, Dave. The main ingredients because we had Ed Green drums that played on quite a few songs. He played for Steely Dan, different people. Klaus Borman. Lee Scalar. Uh, I'm trying to think. Of course, the second record, the second record we did, Dunn played most of the bass, most of the bass, which we liked a lot. But what happened? See, when we first got to California, we were rehearsing out in the valley there in at this ranch house and work up the songs and we go in the studio that night and cut the tracks we did with the first night we came back steve came out to play so i want to try something so he uh, just ernie and i went to the studio and he had uh uh gosh i'm trying to remember the players he had bass player and drummer right yeah because and then while we were there terry broke his arm oh he was climbing this little tree or something. I don't remember exactly how that, but he broke his arm. He he couldn't play anyway. And our and our bass player, he he's pretty good. But he wasn't that near the caliber, right? Yeah. Of L.A. players, and and, they, and I'll be honest, neither was Terry at the time. He was a good little drummer, but he wasn't, you know. But but he stuck around and kind of absorbed it. Levon came in and played on this song, right? Anyway. Uh, Terry hung around and played the thing back up and all that, and kind of tried to learn, you know what I mean, from watching these guys, which was good, good exposure. Bass player, kind of, I guess his wife got upset. Same he had believing. I'm trying to remember some of the other guys that played. I can't. I'm trying to even remember that drummer that we first started with. He was real good too. They were all good. Was it? Uh, I believe he was with uh, Elton John, uh, Nigel Olson. Oh, Oh yeah, Nigel played. He played on the same tune as uh, Lee Scalar, "Easy Way Out." You know. Yeah. Klaus Borman played them on the mountain, stand on the mountaintop with the Levon. Oh, that's him. Yeah, Klaus Borman. In fact, Lee, when Lee came to the studio, he had Carly Simon with him. Oh, he did. Yeah, she just stayed up in the control room. She was real nice. Wow. Looker T come by every once in a while. Oh, he would? Yeah. 
but I don't know, for some reason Steve never did use him. He used Foster, Dave Foster, the extra stuff. So I'm guessing it was Steve Cropper that kind of, you know, put out the call for all the session guys to come by and play on it. Oh yeah, he he was that was his job, make a good record. In fact, after after that first night with the session players, which was about the second night we were out there, third Chuck from a, a record company come by and we played that song "Time for Us," which was the first song we recorded, and uh, he just went ape shit. <laughs> He said, man, this is great. This is what we need. This is what we want. <laughs> Whatever. Oh, it yeah. Never, it was never released as a single or anything. Uh, yeah. But it made it, e- it made it easy for me. Yeah, because we, we had a lot of songs we'd written. And stuff. You know, or just a simple way of arranging them. You know, we, we needed some help. And, and uh, it was a very much a learning experience. Yeah. And it made it easy for us, too, because it, like, it seemed like all at once our songs took some life. There's something about those guys playing all at once. Yeah, it's in the pocket or whatever. You know what I mean? Right. And not that it was bad the other way. It was okay. Then uh, then next year comes around. It's, uh, it's 1976, and In One Eye and Out the Other comes out. Yeah, that's that, we did that in the summer. So we had toured most all winter. Uh-huh. And then so we, we thought it was a little bit early to start on another record, but they wanted us to go ahead and get ahead of it. So. Yeah, you know, we did that, and Duck was at Duck Dunn, like I say, played on most of that, and a lot of the same players, Ed Green, and I think Ed did, I, I can't even remember that all. Now, you, uh, you've you mentioned Donald Duck Dunn on there before. Uh, did yeah. you did you guys get to spend any time with him outside of the studio? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. In fact... Even he was back and forth between there and Memphis. In fact, I stayed at his house in Memphis. Oh yeah. Spent the night with him when he was playing. He was home. He was playing at the Peabody Hotel with with a band there at Mallory's Club or whatever. And my wife and I spent the night with him. And then he he produced a record on Levon, you know. And another thing, we went in 1978 when Levon had the RCO All-Stars. Yeah. He he you know had a bunch of a whole bunch of people on that record but they had it they had this tour of Japan, right? Uh-huh. So they Ernie I mean Levon called us and got me, me and Ernie to go on the tour with him because Booker T couldn't go, Dr. John didn't want to go and uh, so they you know I can't remember who else. Fred didn't want it. Fred Carter didn't want to go. A lot of the people that worked on Levon's record, which he spent a lot of time on, just didn't, or tied up or something. But, so they got Ernie to play keys and me. So Steve Cropper and Ben and me and Ernie and uh, the Saturday Night Live, Live horn section. Yeah. And then, and then Willie Hall, extra drummer, right? Yeah, Willie uh, Willie Hall. Willie Hall, yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know all about that. Anyway, we went to Japan and did a tour. And, of course, with Duck and Steve, it made it a, a lot of fun for us. Anyway, we're good. You know, just got to be good friends. And when, actually, when we, sometimes when we'd play, and okay, even later on, like in the 80s, early 90s, we'd play in Memphis. If Duck was in town, he'd always come down, you know. Oh yeah, 
see this. You know, Cropper came down once and sat in with us, and then Nashville too. Oh, that's cool. On uh, on that uh, album, I want to ask you about a couple of songs in particular on there that I like personally. Uh, I I would put in one eye and out the other in before I would your first album. Um, and, and it might be because, you know, you've, you've kind of gotten used to that LA scene then, or, um, exactly. just some of the songs and, and all of that. I even, agree with you. And, you know, even though the, the, correct me if I'm wrong, the album did terribly in sales. Oh yeah, it did. Uh, I don't know why. But... <laughs> I don't either. Uh, but, uh, like start all over again and, you know, the title track and, you know who right. was sort of the principal songwriter between you and uh, and Ernie? Well, I, I would say that he was more, maybe a little bit more of a lyric lyricist, more into the lyrics than me, and I, I was more into the music part of it, you know, yeah. the arrangement of the songs and stuff. Because you know, you know, start all over again. We actually recorded that before too. I can't remember what. It, I don't think it was ever released. Because we did those two two records for Metro Media, right? Uh-huh. 70s, 1970 and 72, I guess it was. In fact, we were still kind of tied up with it when we got the, the offer from Electra Solemn. So we had to, it took a while to get legally to get us loose yeah. from the Houston, Houston deal, Huey Moe. And then, uh, of course, the title track on there, which uh, I remember the first time I heard that thing and uh, you know, I don't really know what you want to classify that thing. I mean that that intro on there, where you just yeah. kind of walk it down the neck and, that, 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 and then that, it, that. yeah, yeah, and then you know that that whole sort of groove thing in uh, in C minor. I mean that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. You know, actually, we didn't even have a song when we were in California and got with Steve and just trying to picking around, came up with this riff, right? Uh huh. And we kind of wrote pretty much wrote the lyrics just on the spot <laughs> more or less. oh really we knew we had a good track going you know so, so see, it wasn't it wasn't even there when we went to, to do the second record it wasn't it didn't exist yeah it, it happened in the studio basically and uh and then the third song on there can't stop is uh is one that you sing yeah yeah you know, uh what what made you say yeah i'll i'll do one well, no, Ernie wanted me to sing it because he didn't think, he, I don't know, for some reason he didn't want to sing the song. I don't know what, what the reason was. So you need to be singing one a song. Won't you sing this? So I did. I never have done much of that. The harmony is about it. Yeah. And uh, honestly, I really like that song, too. It, uh, it kind of reminded That's me the, of that West Coast AOR sort of, you know, sound. Well, it's better. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Duck Dunn was saying uh, when we cut, he played bass on it, you know, and we was thinking about what's getting ready, to, you know, we're working on the track. He said, well, I kind of hear it kind of like that uh, uh, show and tell. You remember a song called Show and Tell? It was uh-huh. big, L.A. hit. Yeah. Show and tell, the same, almost the same kind of bass line as as we did on Can't Stop. And then uh, stuck in Chicago, wasn't that? There, there's a story behind that one. I've been told. Uh, not really. I thought, <laughs> what, what did Ernie tell you? Uh, something about uh, a, a New Orleans song. That 
kind of tied in with that one. Well, there's a guy that there's actually a guy. I think he's from New Orleans that that recorded it also, but it's our song. I don't know. Hmm. Might have been given some misinformation. I don't know. That that happens, you know. Yeah. And then uh, the last one I want to highlight on there is uh, "Give It All to You." Yeah. With uh, with Albert singing on there. Whatever happened to yeah. Albert? That was sort of you know the only album he was on. Well, what the deal was, like I say, our original bass player dropped out, you know, because he wouldn't get to play on the record, right? Uh-huh. And we're all friends now and everything, but anyway, uh, when we got through with the record, we'd come home, we didn't have a bass player, you know? So, so we, we knew we were going to have to start touring, right? Uh-huh. So we knew Albert from here in town, he played, we thought, he's a pretty good guy, and he kind of liked his style of playing he could he, you know he had you know could play a good nice groove and uh we were friends and uh anyway later on i guess it was a 70 well we did actually when we did in one on that the other he, he went out with us right uh-huh. but they didn't use him on the record which he didn't seem to be too aggravated about, but make a long story short, what happened in the middle of the summer, we played this show in Little Rock at the football stadium with a bunch of people, Jerry Jeff Walker, I don't know, a whole bunch of people on shows in Fourth of July, around the 4th of July, and it was hot, and it was terrible. Levon was there, and Albert, but the next night we were playing, the next night in Kansas City with Hart, right, opening for Hart. Yeah. And Albert decided he was going to drive to Kansas City instead of fly, right? Okay. So we said, well, Albert, you better leave pretty early. Right? So anyway, make a long story short, he, he was super, super late. It was time for us to play, and he, he wasn't there. And luckily, the heart people were really nice. They kept. I said, well, hold off. We'll hold on off. They, they held up the show till he got there. Wow. And so we had to fire him. <laughs> so that's, that's just what happened. He didn't get another chance because we were having trouble anyway because he didn't like want to fly. He was oh, really? afraid of flying. He didn't want to drive his car, meet at the hotel. Like if we were going to be, like one time we played in Maryland with Joe Cocker. And he decided he wasn't didn't want to fly to Cincinnati, which we we're going to be in Cincinnati like three or four days later. Which actually we had a gap; we had time to come home and then go to Cincinnati. He decided he was going to stay up there and drive to Cincinnati, which he did. Of course, we paid for his hotel room and gas, all every all expenses, and just things like that. Finally, we just and then when I, finally one deal when he you know, caused Hart to have to put off their show, it was like. Can't, you know, but he wasn't that great you know, a player anyway. He was okay, you know. But anyway, that's what happened. So we ended up hiring Ron, which we knew, which we should have done in the first place. Ron, oh, uh, is is Albert still alive? Is he still with us? I've heard I've heard different stories. You know, I've heard that he wasn't, and I heard that he is. So I did see something there a couple of years ago. Somebody sent some Facebook or something that he was alive, but. That, I don't know. I don't know. He didn't keep in touch. He's not here. I know that. 
in uh, in in the northwest Arkansas area? You mean? No, I I think he's over around Benton or somewhere over there. I'm not sure exactly. Oh, okay. And he was in Little Rock too one time. Yeah. I actually saw him one time in Little Rock. He was, you know, he wasn't pissed at us or anything. He was just like he knew he screwed up. Whatever, I don't know. It's one of those deals. Now, that album came out in 76, which was the same year that The Last Waltz happened. Yes. Uh, in fact, we were in New, I think we were in New York when they were doing their last waltz. We were up in New York. What, yeah. what did you remember hearing about The Last Waltz? I mean, was it kind of in conversation? Hey, did you hear the bands doing this with Dylan and Muddy Waters and, and all of this stuff? Yeah, kind of. We we. See, we we played with him in uh, September. I guess it was September of '76 at the Tennessee State Fair. Okay. It was like us, the band, and ZZ Tops. And it was like the fair, Tennessee State Fair. I guess it was the fairground. There was about sixty thousand people there. It was a huge crowd. But anyway, that we didn't realize at the time. We didn't get the drift then. It, they were getting ready to break up, but or not break up or whatever. Whatever Robbie's idea was, but then we started hearing about. Well, they're going to do a final show. None of those guys wanted to stop. But it was all Robbie's idea. Yeah. Whatever. And uh, I mean, if if you guys weren't busy, do you think you would have had some involvement with? The last waltz. It's possible, uh, maybe not either, because that was Robbie's deal. You know, I mean, he, he in fact, is Levon and you know, Levon they gave him what do you call it permission to invite somebody, so he invited Muddy Waters. And Robbie says, "We don't have enough space to, for Muddy," you know. And Levon said, "Well, if Muddy don't come, I am. I'm not." <laughs> Because he, he was pissed that he had Neil Diamond on us. You know what I mean? Right. Because Muddy had more to do with whatever. So that was Levon's guy, I put it that way. Yeah. And, of course, uh, Neil Young had always worked with him. But. Yeah. And and I think it was around this time as well that you guys were in England and, and you did a couple of little videos over there. Yeah, we did. It was, one was in Belgium and another one in london and uh did did you guys find much of an audience over there was europe sort of more embracive for yeah surprisingly you know states what, yeah what was strange you know, we, when we played in london at the, i think it was called the new vic auditorium you know, like you know, auditorium it was sold out we were the headliners hot chocolate opened for us really yeah, believe it or not, and they were from there. But of course, they probably helped sell a lot of tickets. But yeah, well, you, you, it was surprising how you know we played. We played in it. We did Amsterdam and did Germany with Poco, and we did the United, you know, United Kingdom and or else Belgium. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's surprising. We actually had fans, and we still do. I mean, there's there's still folks over there in England that are you know discovering you guys, listening to you, and buying you know yeah, your, yeah. your stuff or whatever you yeah. know. Yeah. So yeah, surprising, but that that particular time, I don't know what happened. It just seemed like we came back when we came back from the U.S. We thought 
we could we could kind of got the vibe, you know, that things things are changing, you know, the crowd, radio was changing, you know, record companies was it was just just different, something was going on, and we couldn't figure it out. Then, uh, then the following year in '77. Uh, you did the Cape Brothers Band, and that would be your last album uh, with uh, Electra Asylum. Yeah, they moved us to... See, they started thinking, well, you know, well, maybe we'll change, change producers and change the direction, maybe, you know. So Jim Mason, who was a super guy, and we did a band album with everybody in the band. Yeah. We did use, we, we did use uh, Timmy Smith, Sing back up on one song, and and uh, and we had the horn section on a couple. But other than that, you know, we were pretty much all of us doing the songs. You know, what I mean, doing the playing. And you can tell, as somebody who you know listens to music, that this album has a totally different sound than your first two. And a lot of it oh, has yeah. to do with you know the fact that it it's just the core people. Exactly. And, you know, it's not that you it know. It was more that, of an original style, you know. I mean, it wasn't as wasn't as influenced by the L.A. thing. I guess you could say that. I don't know. Yeah. Not that any of it's all good. It's just more laid back, more, uh, dip, you know, more our just us, you know, whatever that is, you know. Uh huh. So at this point, you know, you're doing an album every year. Are you guys running out of ideas to write about? You guys having writer's block uh, or whatever? Uh, no, not too, not, not too much. I, I think we got a little bit complacent. I don't know. You realize, well, you know, you, you don't know if you want to try to hit, write a hit because it's a hit or if you just want to write, you know what I mean? Yeah. To please yourself or whatever. And then it was an experience working with Tommy Down. And that would right. be uh, your like, album with Atlantic. Yeah. Yeah, Atlantic. That's what they were thinking. Well, they, these guys are really more R&B. Let's maybe we should go to Atlantic because it's still all under Warner Brothers. I think it's not. I think that's right. Anyway, Tommy Dow was a really busy guy, though. That's the only complaint we had in the studio because he was doing the Auburn Brothers right after we got there. Maybe a week after we were there, he was he was doing the Auburn Brothers at night and us in the daytime. Yeah, and then the Beach Bee Gees were next door. Oh, really? <laughs> Criteria Studios is where they got all. Of it. As a matter of fact, that, that that's what kind of killed everything because the disco thing was going crazy. You know, the Bee Gees had huge hits. The movie, you know, I mean, disco was taking over. Yeah, and that's kind of a shame. I mean, granted, you know, yeah. there are some good disco songs out there. Yeah, yeah. And Atlantic started dropping acts left and right. Really? They weren't selling. They weren't selling. That's right. And so they dropped us too. <laughs> that was that. I mean, thinking of you know the songs on there, you know, "Time Is a Thief." Uh, yeah. That should have been a single, a huge single for you guys. I think so, and I don't know what the why they couldn't see it. But I don't know. I mean, the the album hit in the top 30 on the charts or, or so, right? What's that? The album charted, but yeah, there was yeah. no singles, which is kind of right. weird. Yeah, it is. I don't know. Like I say, back then, radio was changing. I don't know. Gradually moving into the autumn, 
you know, we call it automation or whatever, whatever like it is now. Yeah. Back then, when we first started, like in 75, 76, you had FM rock, you know. I mean, DJs would play a whole album uh, from top to finish, and they could pick the songs. The stations could be, create their own charts, more or less, you know what I mean? And the way the record company gauged stuff would be like primary markets, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then they'd figure out, well, this song's, and it's, it's it's number one, so like I told you, number one here, number one there, number one there. It build itself, it build its momentum up, and then it'd be a hit, you know. Right. Nowadays, it doesn't really work that way, I don't guess. Yeah, and on that album, I mean, you got Joe Lala, of course, you know, from his work with Stan yeah. Stills, and right. George Terry from the, the Clapton band, you know, with uh, right. Al Decker, and uh, exactly. Dick Sims, yeah. and those sons and then paul harris from manassas and right. uh, the southern hillman fure band and i mean that exactly well you've been to be studying to work with <laughs> yeah they were yeah all good guys yeah. we've well, been rehe- been researching <laughs> oh yeah yeah <laughs> but the, the, of course those are some great records too you know i i got all of those you know somewhere in the stack you know yeah uh then you guys kind of took a break from recording and you know you would do your thing in japan with uh the reform band uh, right. who who put that together who was behind that whole reform band japan tour you know i'm not even sure we we, we did in 83 right when yeah. the band kind of rick and, and richard had moved back to woodstock everything and i guess i got with the Levon decided they wanted to do a reunion tour, just just do something because they wanted to play. So they, crazy as it sounds, they they're thinking, well, who are we going to get to play guitar? And Levon says, well, Earl is the only guy that I, I know that, that I would want to fill those shoes. <laughs> I so that, believe it or not, that's what they were going to do is do me. And, and Levon said, well, we can't break up the capers. And, Terry, my nephew, so let's just take them with us so they can be the opening band, right? They can open for us. Or whatever. Anyway, we started in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and went all the way to Vancouver that summer for the tour. And then ended up after about two nights, they said, let's just let everybody play because Terry, he, Levi liked it, the drummers, right? Uh-huh. Plus, that he, you know, he'd get up and play mandolin and stuff. But, and then, you know, having Rick like to play acoustic guitar and sing, right? Oh, yeah. But instead of playing bass, he was a great bass player. So Ron played bass. Anyway, it became an eight-piece band, which was really good. I thought, I mean, it was, I say good, I mean, it was solid. You know, we were kind of helped up one side of the band because they hadn't played in so long, Richard. And they were kind of a little bit, when Garth was great, but, I'm, you know, I'm just saying they, they weren't, seasoned yet because it had been off so long you know what I mean so us being there too helped to make it solid you know and that went really well and they were really happy so I, I don't know who came up with the idea I mean who I can't even remember who the agent was decided to send us to Japan again yeah and uh, there's on YouTube you may have seen it I don't know there is a uh, a 
like full length concert or maybe it was a VHS release uh, with, that's got some great footage in there of the band and uh, Leave On and, and just you guys kind of doing your thing. Uh, what, which one was it? Uh, it was for that, that 1983 tour of Japan. Well, see, we did a, a, a Canadian, the band is back in Vancouver, the whole show. And then we did another one in Tokyo, Japan. That's a whole the whole show. Yeah. And that and those are all available on VHS. And then there's another one. Have you seen in 1983, New Year's Eve, San Francisco? We played with the Grateful Dead. They've got a, you can get the whole show on that too on YouTube. Oh, you can. I'll have to look for that yes. one. Because it was a, like a last minute deal, you know, like the week. You know, two or three, it seemed like two or three days or four days before New Year's they called us. They, they had wanted us to come out and play, play with them on New Year's Eve. <laughs> Bill Graham. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. There's a lot. I think sound-wise and performance-wise, it's really good. But there's a lot of sometimes feedback, squeal, and this and that, and some space in between songs. But, but musically, it really good yeah then in the 90s you guys would kind of go back into the studio and uh you mentioned his name earlier dan penn you guys would start writing some songs together and then radio land would come out on ice house yeah. out of memphis yeah what's his name sheffield this guy that owned huey's jay sheffield yeah Huey's, Huey's Midtown was the original one. Now, now they have several Huey's restaurants and they have a lot of music. But anyway, he, he was the owner, of the one of the owners of Midtown Huey's, and he was just a big fan, you know. And of course, he knew Duck and all those guys. And uh, he said, "I want to make a record on you. I want to produce a record on you guys." And he had started, his, he had his own little label, Ice House, that they didn't let him keep because it was somebody else had the name or something. I don't know. But Dan Penn wasn't really, we hadn't done much with him at that time. We did, that's right, we did, I'm sorry, we did write Blue Motel with Dan. And we had some other writers we wrote with, like Leroy Preston would come up to Arkansas and we'd sit around for a few days and he usually had two or three really good ideas. So we had, we did have several songs before we did Radio Land that we could choose from. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, that that's that's such a great record in it in itself too with uh you know like there goes the neighborhood and radio land yeah. radio land especially as a musician you kind of listen to that and you're like you know i don't know what it is about that song but it, it grabs you you know what i mean yeah it does yeah i think so <laughs> that that kind of i don't know what you want to call it. it's kind of that that uh shuffle sort of a thing yeah and then of yeah. course, uh, "Am I Losing You," which, uh, which were you guys the first to do that, or was Coco Montoya the first to do that? No, we were first. He, he, we wrote the song without. Actually, what happened with that song? We had had the tune, but and I, I, I kind of found the song that we recorded on four track. Or whatever. I told Ernie, "We got a good, pretty good tune here, but it needs the bridge." We didn't have a bridge written for it. It was all just verses. So we did. We went, after we did that bridge, said, okay, now it's making you know song come to life. And uh, yeah, we recorded it on Radio Land, and I think 
I I can't remember when I first met Coco, but Coco and I, Coco and, and us became really good friends. And I don't remember, I guess he heard us play the song. A guy named Sherman Robertson also recorded it on Atlantic in Europe. Okay. Didn't know That's about blues, that. A blues guy. Yeah, he did a good version. It's kind of reminded me of Robert Cray. But uh, yeah, and Coco did it. And I wish some more people would do it. <laughs> And get some uh, get some checks in the mail that way. That's right. And then, uh, of course, one of my favorites on there. There's a couple of favorites for me. Damn guilty blues. That's yeah. uh, that's such a fun one too. Coco played on that one. Yeah. Then yeah. uh, recovered soul. That's that's a live one. Right. And then you guys you guys do a bunch of songs from this album live. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Then uh, you know. Go go ahead. I'm trying to think some who was it in Angles and Neighborhood. Uh, uh, the blues band. I can House Blue. House, uh, I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> I can't even think right now. And uh, it's a band with horns and stuff. Was it like a blues band or something? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. There's yeah, several yeah. Anyway, blues it was bands the, out it there. It was the name of the, it was the title of their album. Oh really? <laughs> neighborhood, yeah. I'll think of it in a minute. And then uh, sometimes it jumps us on there. That's a fun yeah. song. Yeah. Uh, and then it was a couple of years later on Big Burger that uh, Struck a Vein came out. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, which was kind of that same label and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it does does. Anything on that album stand out to you? Obviously, Blue Motel's on that one. Yeah. I kind of liked uh, I Miss My Dream. Yeah. I'm trying yeah. to think of some of the other tunes. Can't Keep Up With You That's Stranger at the Door. Stranger at the Door. Can't Keep Up With You, we actually cut in California at the Shangri-La Studios with, I'm trying to think of his name, the producer that worked with Dylan and the band. Anyway, we just got demos on that when Garth played on it, Garth Hudson. So we just never did do anything with that song until then. Yeah. Of course, that record turned out well as as well. And, I mean, these, these albums that you're doing in the 90s, I mean, were they, you know, selling about as many copies as some of your earlier albums on Atlantic and no. Electra Asylum? Or was it just sort no, of I like don't... a local sort of a thing I think regional had, it was we, we had fairly good distribution with radio and because they used uh, that company in la dr dre was on was it anyway they did fairly good distribution with that but well, there was no heavy promotion the thing with the record companies with the real record of course they're kind of becoming passe nowadays but, Back then, the seventies record companies they had promo man, man. They pushed the records. Every city had their, they had their own rep in every major city, uh -huh. and that was their job is to promote those records. You know what I mean? That's what made it happen. Made it sell too. Right then, uh, then in ninety uh, eight, you did the uh, the live album. Yeah, that was Jimmy Thackeray. Oh wait a minute, oh live that was at Chester's. That's right. The club there on Dixon, now down is, the street, is uh is Chester still there? It's called something else now. It's, they don't have live music, but it was the library originally called the library. We played there for years, 
then some, some people bought it that were really nice and called Chester, and that was a really great place to play. Everybody played there, Coco and everybody. George's was still going down the street, but actually Chester's had more music you know, coming through and stuff, all the blues groups and stuff. Because there was a time when the blues thing was pretty happening. You know, they could promote stuff, you know, and, and get good crowds, but anymore, and I can't do it here for some reason. Tabin was about the only guy that could come to Fayetteville and draw a crowd. Really? As far as the blues, we call it blues, you know. That that CD that we're talking about, the Cape Brothers Band Alive, it's yeah. a real good example of of it's about the length of a set, so we'll call it a set. Uh, it's a real good example of a set of of your guys playing live. Oh, I think so. Yeah. And uh, obviously Porky, I believe he's on that one, isn't he? Yeah, Porky. Porky, yeah. Yeah, Porky's Terry, no Terry longer with moved. us. Terry had moved. Well, Terry, Terry had moved. I forget what Virginia or somewhere, and Braun had moved to Nashville to play with Joel Sonier. So we we had to pick up new new bass player and drummer. And Porky was been around here for a little while. He's from Washington D.C. area. Really solid drummer boy. And, uh, and then John John played bass. Now Porky, he did some stuff with like Albert King or something, didn't he? He says he did. I hadn't heard heard any of it. Yeah, he did. And he, he said he played with KC in the Sunshine Band, too. Oh, really? It <laughs> was a brief, brief period of time, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, obviously, John Davies is, is yeah. you know, working with you guys a little bit at this point, too. Yeah, he, of course, yeah, he's backing down. He was gone for a while, too. He went to Florida. Did his thing down there with uh, Dr. Hector and Drew Lombard yeah, and all that. Yeah, then later, then later, Michael Burks. Right. Then... Uh, then in 2004, Play by the Rules came out. Yeah, that was a Jimmy Thackeray uh, deal. He produced that. He, he said, I know this guy, Danny. I forgot his last name. Down in Marietta, Georgia. And he used to work for one of the big record companies. But he had a studio. Jimmy had done some recording there. stuff. He said, I know a good place to go. Let's go down there. And he talked to Danny, and Danny was all, all for it so we did went down and did the record yeah and uh obviously there's a couple of covers on there you did another version of yield not to temptation yeah yeah you know the band with uh the shape i'm in yeah and then we redid out on the limb oh yeah that's right that's on there too yeah. and then uh of course i i like uh child of the uh the wild blue well, yonder that's a good song john high yeah and then, yeah. uh, you know, the title track and start all over again. Those are those are great songs as well. Yeah, we were, we wrote that. Uh, you don't play by the rules with uh, Buddy Flynn and uh, I know he passed away. David Egan wrote that song with them, and John Mayo cut it. Oh yeah, we, yeah, he did. He cut it before we did. Another song on our wake-up call is another song we wrote with them. Somebody else did that one, too. It might have been John Mayall. <laughs> I don't know what the connection was. Gotcha. But we were with Bug Music in Nashville, right, the publishing thing. They, at one time, had John Hyatt's catalog. But they, they helped us some. You know, 
as far as other people recording stuff. Right. Now, you know that song, All I Gave to You? Uh-huh. Marshall Tucker Band did a version of that. I have a 45 of it. It's called All The Love I Gave. They changed the title. Yeah. Otherwise, it's the same song. I have a 45 for some reason that them doing that. Huh. Now, when was it that you sort of formed Earl and Them, your your other band? What happened, I, gosh, I don't even remember the year now. I want to say 2006, but surely it can't be that far back. Uh, Ernie just kind of decided he didn't want to play all the time, right? His wife was kind of like, I think his wife was like, you know, I want to have you on the weekends or something like that. Anyways, no, no hard feelings or anything like that, but he, he just wanted to lay back for a while. So there I was, first of the year came out, our last gig was like on New Year's Eve. The first year came around, I I didn't have anything to do. I didn't, you know, I didn't have a band and nothing. Anyway, Thackeray was still living in over about Eureka Springs. He said, man, let's, let's do something. He said, I'm bored. Let's do something. Let's, you know, I said, okay. So I booked a gig at George's and, uh, Inside, of course, and then this guy, uh, the heart player, R.J. Mishu, right? Yep. Just happened to move into town because his folks lived in Eureka. And and, and and Jimmy's agent called Jimmy and said, you know, R.J. Mishu just moved into your area. You ought to get him to come play with you. And they didn't really know who he was. I didn't either, you know. So we went, we went to Georgia's and set up and play. We didn't have a rehearsal or anything. RJ came down, him and Jimmy hit it off. And we played a happy hour set without rehearsal. It sounded really oh, good. really? Yeah. Like, Wait, this is fun, you know. So J- Jimmy, we booked some more gigs and we started playing around. And of course, Jimmy went back out on the road. And he, he he just made a, he was just kind of joking. At, what do we want to call this band? I said, man, I don't know. He said, let's just call it Earl and them because everybody's always asking where Earl and them play. <laughs> So I just kind of stuck with that. It wasn't my idea. Gotcha. Now, how did uh, how did Jason Davis come into the picture? Well, he, you know, I'd we I'd met Jason back when he was with Jason, baby Jason and the Spankers, right? Okay. From Lincoln, Nebraska, that's where he's from. He used to come down here and play some, and he met his wife here at in it's a library. Well, no, it's Chester's. Like, yeah, it was Chester's. He played Chester's, and he met Donna, his wife. You know, anyway, they their romance. And he, anyway, anyway, I mean, long story short, they ended up moving down there and marrying her. And, and he played in the band called the Table Rockers, who was the guy that used to own the Zoo Bar in Lincoln. Had moved down to Eureka. He was a bass player, and uh, he's passed away. But anyway, I see Jason there once while he, he'd come and see Harris playing. So when when uh, Jimmy went hit back on the road, right, and, and so did RJ, he'd go on the road. We did, actually, we did a couple of road things with RJ, but anyway, Jason was itching to play. So, oh, let's, let's do something. So I said, okay. <laughs> and then changed a little, you know, had Mike, uh, see, Matt Brown, I his name. Bass player really good. He moved away. So John just happened to move back. Fayetteville about the same time that Mike left, so we didn't miss a lick there. That's kind of the way it is. And of course, Renko, Dave Renko plays with the son, sax player. Right. You guys have 
even found time to do a couple of albums. How many how many albums have Earl and them done? Well, we did the two, and then we did the live album, which was kind of a combination. It, the live one was done at, at George's. We had that while while we were doing the same love, which was the second CD. While we were doing that, we played a gig at George's and invited Jimmy, he was in town, get Thackeray in with that Dave Sessler, invited them to play the show Happy Art Georgia. And we weren't planning on it being a record. We just, you know, but this guy, Mark Riss, the guy, the real estate guy in town, he told Arlie just to record us. No, it wasn't Arlie, it was Putman. But anyway, they recorded, make long story they recorded us without us really realizing they were recording it. We just did a two hour show or whatever. And uh, ended up being the live record. Yeah. So we've only really, really just did two record albums, and then the third was a live, a combination of all those two record songs, pretty much, plus some others. And we've got another one that's pretty much ready to go. So we've got a couple of things to do on it. It's just the four of us. You no, know, there's no ex- extra guests or anything. Jason wanted to do that. So. But now with the you know the COVID thing and all that, there's really not much going on. I mean, it's hard to promote a CD when you can't go out and play. Right. And we could do a little bit of the outdoor. The outdoor thing is going to be over with here real quick. Hey, yeah, George once it cools off. What's that? Once oh, it yeah. uh, cools but off and we, we, all that. We didn't. We here a while back. We we were supposed to play, and we ended up just doing a virtual deal inside, which didn't do that great because it's too cold, you know, but I think that they may be able to get one in this Friday. But other than that, I think they're supposed to allow them 200 people inside, which I'm not sure how that's going to work. I've got a couple of shows booked there. You know, I mean, 200 people in close, they, they may, if something happens, they'll cut them back. You know what I mean? Right. It's just so unfortunate. It's just hurting all the live music scene. However, I do know some guys are just going ahead and playing the casinos and stuff like nothing's wrong, but it's still still kind of a risky deal. Right. Especially indoor. I don't know how they're doing it in Tulsa, you know. I, I know it's Paul Benjamin's, you know, Jesse Acock, those guys going right ahead playing the colony and whatever. I don't know how they it's all problem. that. It's all that you know, limited capacity stuff, and yeah, all of that. Yeah, but George's inside two hundred people, and distancing six feet, it's going to pretty much look full. Right. Because you can put four or five hundred in there. You know, we've had papers, we've had five, about at five hundred. But uh, yeah, I don't know how that's going to be. It's too bad. I'm, and Jason will not play casino. Period. We we got a, plenty of work there if we want it, but he won't do it. Gotcha. Yeah, I kind of don't blame him in a way. I mean, there's just too much we don't know about it. I mean, the situation like downstream is we you know casinos are different anyway. But the green room is up behind the stage. The stage is up high behind the bar. I mean, you're not really in contact with people. In fact, you can stay in the green room. You wouldn't have to go. You know, we'd have to have contact with anybody. But his theory is, well, we don't know about the ventilation. You know, the air in the aerosol, people breathing, the bartenders, they're right below you. You know, the, you know what I'm saying? 
if, if, if their air is going up toward to, to you on stage, you know, you got, it's pretty risky. You can't wear a mask while you're playing. So. I don't know. Yeah. Earl, I want to talk a little bit about guitars and your style. <laughs> um, you know, it's one of those things that's kind of well-known in this part of the country uh, of good quality music and, and the Cape Brothers, you know, that name just immediately pops up. What was sort of your first electric guitar you ever bought? I think it was an airline. It had one pickup on it, single cutaway. Wasn't much of a guitar. Yeah. Then I, when, I, when I graduated to electric, I got a, a Fender Music Master, which was a three-quarter size neck. I didn't even realize it at the time, but I didn't know much about it was a nice little car, maple neck, and I bought a little tweed Harvard amp, which was, you know, it's a nice sounding little rig. I said, wow, you know. And from, I went from the from that guitar to, I bought a brand new music, uh, not music, I'm trying to think of, I traded for a telly. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> I need to a blank on Jazzmaster. Okay. Jazzmaster. I bought a brand new Jazzmaster, and I traded it even for a 57 Telecaster. Oh, wow. 57 Telecaster look was brand new in the case. The wow. guy thought he was really, the guy thought he was really getting penny because Jazzmaster was a lot more, cost a lot more than a Telecaster and it was really more versatile, you know, had whammy bar and all that stuff and it sounded good but I just liked that. I'd heard Robbie and Fred playing the Telecaster and, and, uh, and I, I, yeah, I really liked the way they sounded <laughs> There's something about them, you know. Even though they really upgraded, the pickups are probably better in the Jazzmaster. But there's the sound of the Telecaster had a certain sound, and I like that. Stayed with it. I've lost some good ones. I had a '52 Tele that was was my baby, man. That thing that was was played on Union Man and all that. And I had it and the '57, but they both got stolen in New York oh, City. God, we had roads. Yeah, we had roadies, right, at his truck, and we were playing in in New York down in the village at the Lone Star Cafe, actually doing a TV show with uh, Bo Diddley and Johnny Cat, Johnny Paycheck of all people, and then we were with Levon, right? Anyway, the guys came down with the truck the night before we were supposed to play, the rental truck with all our equipment, parked it at the hotel. Hindsight, we shouldn't even ever let them come down from Woodstock until the next day. <clears throat> anyway, make a long story short, overnight they stole the truck. So they stole it was everything: drums, amps. I had I had uh, two Music Man amps, and we had, of course, drums, bass, red keyboards, everything. We didn't have anything, so we had to rent everything for the next night and the rest of the tour that we were doing. And then it happened again in 83 or 84 when we were playing with the band. We were in Queens and they stole the truck. But lucky I'd kept my uh, main guitar, I tell you, I had it with me because <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't take a chance anymore. I took it to my room. Anyway, that was a bummer. Yeah. Well, the guitar I see you uh, playing most of the time is a white Telecaster. Yeah, that's a 57. In fact, in fact, that's the guitar that I started to say this one. I, had I can't remember. I had, had another one. 
I still got a 55. After mine got my stolen, I, a guy bought a 55 that was in good condition. I still have it, and I put Seymour Duncan pickups in it. But I, I don't really take it out or anything because it's such a good condition. And this 57 I bought from a friend of mine, he was back there before I bought the 55 actually for 300 bucks because he, he needed money. And I didn't know back then it wasn't that big a deal, but I just kept, kept it, you know. Finally, one time I brought that one out and I thought, man, something about this guitar I like. And I ended up putting Joe Barden, factory uses in his Stratocasters, those Joe Barden pickups. Uh-huh. They're, real, they're real expensive, but they really sound good. And, and there's something about that old guitar. I've had it refretted twice. There's something about it. It's all beat up and everything, but it, I don't know what's the wood or what. It's just got to, I've tried, you know, I've got four Telecasters, right? Uh-huh. This is the only one that, you know, does it for me. There's <laughs> something about it. I mean, outside of the outside of your telecasters uh do you do you have uh any other guitars do you have some gibsons maybe or you know some less no, paul less paul or anything really, i've got i don't have my i've got a dance you know i've never been much of a collector i've had a strat and i sold it i've had i have a harmony rocket you know what that is or not it's like a three pickup harmony hollow body semi hollow body okay it's kind of a kind of collector's item i've got a yeah. dan electro and uh, a couple others. I can't remember what all I've got. I've just never been a really big collector, you know what I mean? Right. What is it about Music Man amps that you like? Have you been a Music Man guy since they first came out? Yeah, I have. Cause, you, know, it's, you know, it's funny. Well, actually, originally, you know, I, when I bought that Jazz Master, I traded that at the music store. They had a Tweed Basement and a Fender Concert. Okay. I took I I bought the concert because I wanted the tremolo, the vibrato. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I wish that now I wish I'd have bought the fourteen basement. You know I mean? So then then they started. You know that music man came out. They said, well, you know this is, you know, a step up from the super reverb, right? Right. And the basement. So I ended up because I think what was the guy's name from Tulsa? He used to come over here with Ann Bell. I can't remember. Uh, Ann Bell? Yeah, he played with her, the guitar player. Uh, he passed away. But anyway, he had a music man they played at the library club. And I, I said, man, I like the sound of that amp. He said, man, you ought to do it. It's a lot better and super. It's louder and it's better. You know, So I bought one. And then after the... Uh, ended, I ended up when we with the record company. had had two, uh, two 410s and one... A 112. I had three Music Man amps on stage. Wow. I used the 112 kind of as a monitor, and the four tens were all one on each side of the drums or whatever. But I don't know. I just I just like them. I've tried it. You know, other amps. Some of them. I've got a Super Reverb that's been rewired blackface. That that sounds. I really like the sound sound of it, but it's it doesn't quite have enough juice. You know, enough volume outside or such places like that, or not casino or something. It works fine, but just don't quite have enough in it. Plus, it don't have quite the. I can't explain what I'm trying to say. The press, the mo, the mo, the mellow. Uh, I'm trying not to say mellow is the right word. The tone-wise, it's just the music man is more, it's better tone. 
But gotcha. even but for but for blues, the supers it really sounds good. You know? And I've got a blackface deluxe and another little Fender. I can't remember what it's called. I don't have a whole bunch. I've got a Music Man piggyback head that actually needs to get fixed. But like I say, I've just never been a real collector. I I don't you know. I bought the rocket just because it was unique, you know. Mm-hmm. But Ron, or a bass player, the old bass player that lives in Nashville, he's got an unbelievable collection of spaces and stuff just through the years. Yeah. I just, for some reason, I just never have, like, oh, I, I see that guitar, it looks good, so I want it. You know, I don't ever have that attitude. I don't ever feel like that. Like, gotcha. If, if I played it and it played great and sounded super, I'd probably might be interested, but. I'm okay with what I got <laughs> so far. <laughs> I've tried. Jimmy's got those Category 5 amps. This guy in Dallas makes them. He loves them. I, I, I took one on the Blues Cruise. We did with Ernie and I did Blues Cruise. Terry, he had them especially have one there for me, you know, and I just didn't like it. I see. Now the the Music Man amp that you use today, what what is that one? The one that you usually play with? It's a 410 HD. Okay. It's like it's like you know, you got two power. You know, up high power is like 130, low power is 65. I always use low power. Oh wow! Okay. 65 watts. I can't tell a whole bunch of difference between high and low unless I guess because I don't turn it up, you know. Yeah, but that amp, believe it or not, the amp I'm playing right now got stolen in New York. Oh, it did? And you got it back? <laughs> yes. Yeah, got it back. That second time when they sold the truck and we were playing with the band, we got about half of our equipment back. Garth lost a bunch of his keyboards. Ernie lost his, I think. And we got back of JC120, Roland Amp, which was Ernie's keyboard amp. Got that back and my music, man, a couple other items. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, who who was instrumental in introducing you to effect pedals? Oh, I don't know. When I was at the music store, I guess is when it first started. Well, the wah-wah things was first, obviously. And then gradually, you know, MXR, Electro Harmonix, all these people making those little pedals. Uh-huh. I used to use that Phase 90. I was I used that's what year on Union Man. So Cropper used one too. Oh, really? Phase 90, little orange one. I used to have one. Just gradually in delay, chorus, your crutches. <laughs> so, Earl, if we were to look at your pedal board, what's on it? I've got two delay pedals. Two? You got like yeah, an analog and a digital? Well, they're both digital. Oh, wow. Okay. One is, well, no, I'm saying it back there. The old pink one is analog. Okay. But, but I use the the digital one for di- for the short delay, and then I use the analog for a long repeat delay. So, I, you know, get two different sounds. The one I keep on all the time, the short delay thing, and, and the other I use just for for effects. And I've got Octaver and a chorus. That's it. Uh, and then I outboard. I use a Stamps, oh, uh, Drive-O-Matic, Coco gave me. He used to use one of them. Bonnie Raitt did it for a while with, with her slide, but I really like it. It's a, it's a you know, preamp 
stripe overdrive, but it's not real distorted. It's not like a you know fuzz pedal or anything. Excuse you, you don't lose your tone. I've got some. I've got a couple of, of Boss like super what's it called? Super drive, overdrive, some kind of thing. But it sounds okay, but it, it makes it thin. You don't. You lose the bottom end when you. You go through it when you turn it on. You use the bottom end, but this stamps you still keep. It, it just enhances the tone, the highs and lows. Gotcha. And I don't play it on all the time. I play it for mostly for leads, but I, I like it. I say it. I don't. I don't get in. Like I say, I'm just kind of same with them guitar. I don't really try every pedal that comes out. Sometimes I'll hook one up to store. And it's pretty cool, but where would I ever use it? <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you're one of those people, personally, I would love to get a guitar lesson from. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I know. I just, just do it. Now, you used to do uh, some lessons and stuff, didn't you? I did. When I, what happened is when we came off the road in 66, we, uh, here's some dogs. Oh, in 66. Yeah. I forgot what I was going to say. Oh. What would you ask me actually? Uh, guitar lessons, doing guitar lessons. Oh, guitar, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Cause I didn't. We weren't playing because they're both. You know, we split up. The band, the Delray, split up after the tour in the, in the spring of '66. Anyway, the new a, a new music store here in Fayetteville called Ben Jack's Music, right? And uh-huh. uh, went down and visited them a couple of times, and they knew that I was, you know, played and stuff. But, you want know, to make a long story short? The guy called me that was running the store and said, Hey oh, would you would you like work at the store and teach guitar and 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 work at the store, you know and that's I guess so. So he made me an offer. It wasn't a whole lot of money, but you know, at the time I wasn't doing much. Anyway, I hadn't been there probably I started teaching, right, for about a month. And uh-huh. then the guy that was the manager and we had a race car, and he was spending all this money on it and stuff. Anyway, make a long story short, he ran off, took took some some couple of guitars and money out of the cash register, and disappeared, and left his wife. His wife was there, Karen. Anyway, Ben Jack, who lived in Fort Smith, the owner, comes up, you know, and says, "Oh, you wanted to take over the store <laughs> as a manager?" So that's what I did. Stayed there eight years ran the store and I had guitar teachers then but not only just a short time I was teaching I taught a little bit when I was managing but I couldn't do both obviously I'd have I always had somebody else working with me too but I never did do much teaching I'm not very good at it well one of the last things I want to highlight is the documentary and the 50th anniversary CD that came out recently yeah yeah what uh what what can you tell us about those did you look at the video yet? I did. Yeah, I watched as soon as I got home. Actually, that's great. What? Oh yeah. Well, this guy Ben Ben Benjamin Mead, he's from Kansas City area. That he's done a lot of docu- film documentaries and stuff. And he's, uh, I can't explain. He's also uh, been a professor and stuff. I mean, he's a little bit younger than than we are, but he moved here to Tant to Fadville. And about built a little studio. It's not really a regular type studio. It's a real super nice place, but and it's acoustically perfect. But it's not set up like a regular recording studio. But he's trying to do his little Cosmic Cowboy label and stuff. 
And he, he had filmed us up in Kansas City at Knuckleheads. And kind of, he's a fan. He's just a fan, you know. And he, he wanted to do something, so I don't, we didn't really have anything to do with it. Like, I, I, hadn't, I didn't even see the thing until it was already until they showed the showed it at George's inside. I didn't know what was in it. But he did a good job. He, he teaches a film class at the university here. Of course, he's doing it virtual right now. But, and he's did some documentaries. He did one on Haiti that was real good. And uh, he's kind of a crazy guy. He's kind of a cosmic cowboy. But, <laughs> but anyway, he's the one that did it. So it's kind of nice. And it turned out well, for sure. Yeah, they did a good job on it, I thought. <laughs> You know, you never get all the information, but I thought the way they put it together was pretty cool. Yeah. Where can people get that documentary in the 50th anniversary CD? Well, you can contact me or you can contact him. And uh, you guys do like, uh, what, credit card and, and check and stuff like that? Uh, I might be able to do uh, Venmo. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Or PayPal, maybe? Yeah, we, I don't have a PayPal set up. I don't know what he's got. He, I know he's coming up with a new website that's going to have all that stuff on it. Gotcha. Here anytime, I'll find out. Yeah, and the cover for that documentary was the Clinton inauguration, the, the yeah. big picture. Yeah, we went up there. Bill got elected. We played a, a show on Sunday called the Blue Jean Bash. Uh-huh. And we had... I didn't know who else would be. I know we knew Levon and the band, the rest of the guys in the band, you know. And then Stephen Stills and uh, Dickie Betts, uh, Bob Dylan. And we didn't even know any of those guys were going to be on the show. We just thought it was just us and Levon and the guys in the horn, horn section. So we had a rehearsal on Saturday night. And uh, all at once here comes Dylan out with his hood up wearing hoodie on <laughs> didn't say a word to anybody just started banging on the guitar and playing didn't even remember what song he did <laughs> didn't sound very good but then <laughs> i swear the next night when it came out he did play a totally and played a different song yeah well we did do we did do key to the highway with with steve stills but, and bob dylan but anyway yeah that was that deal and the next year we went back again and they cut it way back I see. The first one, uh, Dr. John, Clarence Clemens, too, I forgot about them. And Don Johnson, the actor, he was the MC. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Well, I mean, looking back on your career thus far, do you see yourself stopping anytime soon? I don't want to. I mean, this COVID thing has got crazy because you can't think i don't like right now i don't have a gig until november right you know what i mean at georgia's and we might not even do that if it's inside jason may not want to do it yeah so anyway that's frustrating because I, I like to play you know right. i don't plan on i'm not ready to quit yet you know i'm like willie i just as long as people want to hear it they don't want to play you know oh yeah you'll, i don't ever think do about it that way you know about oh, i'm going to get out of this business uh-huh no, that's, that's what I do, or try to do anyway. Well, before I let you get off of here, I uh, I want to say thank you for your time thank and you. your willingness to uh, to come on the show with me. 
No problem. Appreciate it, Logan. Well, there you have it, everyone. That is my interview with Earl Kate of the Kate Brothers Band. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, be sure to tell the world and share with your friends. And be sure to check out previous episodes of LV's Music Corner. Until next time, I'm Logan. You're listening to LV's Music Corner. Be humble and don't stumble. <laughs>